Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Slate Political Gap Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at Bonobos.com GABFEST. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot GABFEST. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. And by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new, delicious recipes, complete with step-by-step instructions. They're designed to take around 30 minutes. Visit HelloFresh.com and enter GabFest when you subscribe. You'll get $35 off your first week of deliveries. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 15th, 2016, the There Once Was a Union Made But Not Anymore edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is in Vermont. I'm sure he got that Woody Guthrie mess, uh, reference, didn't you, John? No, I missed it. The there, title. What was the Woody There Guthrie? Once Was a Union Made? Oh, 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 oh. yeah, sorry. I was... You're already losing him. You're already boring him. I'm I'm sorry. I was off in the mountains in my brain. Sorry. Uh, So anyway, there's Dickerson in Vermont. But here in Washington with me in our studio, whoa, it's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. We're all back together. It has been, I feel like it's been an age since we've done a show together. It has been weeks Months, well, it has been the whole turning of the new year, so it's that's been the true. Turning of the new year, but I don't think we've t- we haven't been together for four weeks. 
practically. Crazy. Crazy. On this week's GabFest, Bernie Sanders chases Hillary Clinton in Iowa. Can he catch her? Then the Supreme Court sharpens its knife to gut and fillet public employee unions. Then Sean Penn's El Chapo interview. Was it morally wrong for him to do that Do that interview? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we will fell over the stumbles of a rich guy. It's always, it's always nice to talk about the stumbles of a rich guy. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. The Republican race is catching most of the headlines right now, but there is a quiet storm brewing on the Democratic side. As Bernie Sanders has essentially caught Hillary Clinton in Iowa polls and leads in New Hampshire polls, Clinton, who's been campaigning fairly modestly, I would say, has also been forced to slap aside claims that she might be indicted over her emails or that she's bad for women because her husband is a sexual predator. John, why is 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 Hillary Clinton slipping or is Bernie Sanders rising or both? I think Bernie Sanders is rising. Hillary Clinton is bedeviled by all the stuff she has been, which is a lack of deep enthusiasm among base Democratic voters for her and questions about her trustworthiness. But Bernie Sanders is, you know, cont- continuing to kind of build on the momentum and the and the love that he's shown. Bill Clinton used to say, you know, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. People are in love with uh, Bernie Sanders. And um, as far as the polls show, they're like, it's working for him. Um, we'll see. We still have, there's still quite a lot of time. But um, it's definitely in, in Iowa in particular, the, just the ghosts of 2008 when Hillary Clinton was ahead and then Obama doubled the number of people who traditionally turn out for the caucus, which is amazing. In 2004, 120 some odd thousand turned out, 240 the next time. Like that, that idea of just enthusiasm breaking the scales, you know, is just something that is uh, hovering over the Clinton people. And you know that even without talking to them because of the, the uptick in the attacks on everything from guns to health care. Uh, with Bernie Sanders. Um, and we can talk about the healthcare one, but there's something about the nature of the healthcare attack that's really amazing in that it's kind of a, it's, there's a, it has a kind of break glass uh, in case of emergency feel. Well, I can't remember, do Democrats and Republicans caucus on the same night? Yeah. They do, but not in, exa- not in the same way. The Democrats have this more complicated system where they, if somebody doesn't, I believe this is true, it's been a, it's been since 2008, but um you don't get to, if you don't get 15% of the vote in the caucus, then your votes can be distributed. Right. Now, that is not really in play this time around, probably, because Martin O'Malley's you know, votes are not likely to be so numerous that they would then get redistributed. There was a huge, remember, with Edwards. And, right, and, right. Um, you know, anyway, so do, they, do, they do go on the same night. Do, Emily, do you think that part of the Sanders rise has to do with the fact that on the Republican side, you have this incredibly fun, vigorous, dynamic race, and there's a little bit of race envy, hey, what about excitement us? envy, yeah. And the Democrats want to want to grab some of that joy and some of that. I think excitement. that that makes sense. I also think, though, that when you offer core Democratic primary voters a more liberal vision, someone who is shaking his fist at Wall Street and talking about single payer health care system and offering this tantalizing possibility of an actual left agenda. Of course, those voters are going to be more excited about it. And it's again, it's in sync with the Republican voters. You have this moment um 
it's a flirtatious moment of wanting to go for this person who um, could is pro- is holding out the the possibility of what you would actually like to see, even though there's really zero chance he could enact it. Well, in government. this is one of the f- questions. That, well, there's zero chance he could act it in government, but there's the other question, which is you and maybe Ross Doubt that has a piece about this today. That there is this sense that Sanders is slightly surprised that he's in play, and he he wasn't intending to run in a way that he actually thought he was going to win. So it, does he now? Is he John? Is he does he find himself in the position of the dog that has caught the postal van? <laughs> um, you know, well, well I think a, an interesting question that someone should ask him along those lines is, you know, Donald Trump says if he doesn't win, the whole thing will have been useless. I don't think the same is true with Bernie Sanders. I think that he feels like he is—he already has changed the conversation. Hillary Clinton's focus on Wall Street and income inequality has, you know, been much more robust as a result of his challenge. And so he has achievements that he can feel confident with. And and so the reason I link that to your question is, if this was a message campaign in the beginning, then you know the message has gotten across. But he is doing things. Uh, in response to Hillary Clinton, that suggests you know he really is in it now. Um, but I think I think there is a a, a little bit of a dog um, that caught the fire truck feeling, and um, I you know I think it'll the dogs uh, catch I mean, postal trucks. I don't think they catch fire trucks. But anyway, go ahead. I thought it was fire truck. Anyway, I mean it's really gonna be it'll be fascinating to watch their next debate just to see because remember there was a long time when there was a sort of a detente between the two of them. They were running you know this was a nice kind of quiet campaign now it's getting now it's starting to really look like a, kind of a truly ugly primary race so emily what are the areas where they're getting ugly guns is one right right and then criticism of bill clinton which is building we're having i mean i feel like we're going to have an endless number of waves of this form of criticism assuming that hillary clinton is the nominee or just leading up to the primaries this you know excavating of all of his uh sexual misdoings and whether she was enabling him or defending him in a way that also taints her. Um, I feel like a lot of it is pretty unfair to her. As far as we know, she didn't know about a lot of what he was doing at the time. I also feel like their marriage is should be allowed to have some semblance of we don't get it and it's their own deal and things you do in the course of your marriage um, to save it or to defend your spouse are like on you. But I mean, we're going to have more of that. And, you know, Sandra started playing into that. But barely. I mean, I, I mean, unless I'm only in response to a was, question, right? Yeah, it was in response. And he said he said what he did was despicable, I think. Was that the word yes. he used? But mm-hmm. then he said, basically, it's not in bounds, right? He Yes. Um, and, and, and also just on the larger question, I mean, clearly Donald Trump is going to be talking about this, but I think there's a, there's a, a split in terms of the accusations that are being made. One is the sort of the whole basket of stuff, just the, you know, uh, and that's what Donald Trump is doing. The other is the sort of Ruth Marcus argument, which is that there is an actual, like, workplace violation here that took place between a, somebody who was in a position of power and a subordinate, and that that is, that's a distinct thing that he should, that, that is in bounds, separate and apart from what you were talking about, which is, like, the complexities of a marriage and, and all of that, which, uh, which some people would say is out of bounds. I mean, I, look, I... 
if the fucking Clinton Lewinsky affair wasn't litigated enough and if the country didn't damage itself enough over that, it is absolutely ludicrous that we have to relitigate that thing now. It's ludicrous. It's insane. Right. And any insane. allowing of it into the conversation, even though, of course, it's going to happen, but it, it makes it feel more acceptable and mainstream for Sanders to give it some kind of platform. And even if what he's doing, you know, when you take it apart, makes total sense and is defensible, it's still it still lets that dog into the room. What John, what's the what's I don't that I yeah, I sort of feel like that's I mean, if guys ask the question and his position is the sensible one, which is of course this is of course this right. behavior was wrong. Like of course it was, but it's not right. you know, it's not a part of the campaign. I don't see how he could do it any better really. Right. I no, mean I, I agree. It's yeah, the tr- it's enough. what Trump is where Trump is going that's the problem. John, what yeah, is, what is where Trump is what's the healthcare fight brewing? <laughs> Well, what strikes me as really, really, really interesting about the healthcare fight is so many different things. Okay, one, the whole campaign's making the fight, but but that the Clinton campaign used Chelsea Clinton to make the attack. So that's interesting. One, what just, attack was? But it? didn't Chelsea just well, repeat so things Hillary had so, already said? It, but having Chelsea Clinton make the attack is a new player in – I mean, she's not just giving speeches and saying my mom's great. Right. She's arguing basically – and this is what – I mean, it's a pretty – it's a pretty – sort of sneaky attack. Essentially what the attack is, is it's that Bernie Sanders is going to get rid of his health care plan, is going to cause uh, the children's health insurance plan to go away, Medicaid to go away. All these people are going to be vulnerable um, as a result of his uh, um, single-payer health care plan. Now, what that um, – so dismantle Medicare, dismantle private insurance, and then it'll give, you know, Republicans uh, – so – what that suggests, what's crazy about that as an attack is, I mean, the reason those things will go away is because Bernie Sanders is offering, offering an alternative. So it's like saying, basically, I'm going to buy a new car and somebody's saying, well, you're not going to be able to drive because you won't have your old car. But right. you'll be able and, to drive because you have your new car. And I mean, it's attacking it's, him as if he was on the right and she was positioning herself to his left when, in fact, his new plan, it's the opposite. Yeah. Now, you can attack single payer by saying there's no way. And the country just went through a huge paroxysm over something less than single payer. And are voters really going to sign up for going through another bloody, ugly fight over health care? Probably not. And a variety of other things. But to say that, like, it's going to get rid of all this stuff, it's just it's an extra sneaky attack. I mean, and then also, of course, Hillary Clinton, perhaps more than, well, second, I guess, to Barack Obama now, but used to be for a long time, the person who had outlandish claims about the, the um, health care plan she was putting forward, it was like a textbook thing. That, that, the, that, so she knows what it's like to have somebody totally distort what you're putting forward. So to herself be doing that, for the purposes of undermining Bernie Sanders seems to me to be an extra layer of uh, richness here. Do you guys think, uh, just going back to the Obama analogy, which one of you made early on, maybe it was you, John, Bernie Sanders is a 70-something-year-old white guy. Jewish, don't forget. White Jewish guy. He He's so not Barack Obama. When does the the kind of enthusiasm when does when does reality set in? The reality never need to set in for Obama because he genuinely represented this whole demographic shift and he himself was in, in his embodied in his skin color was somebody different. But Sanders is not that person. So the enthusiasm has to 
dissipate in some fashion? How does it dissipate? I mean, he's much more like Bill Bradley or something. I mean, I think we can't forget that we're talking about Iowa and New Hampshire, two very specific, very white states in which Sanders has more appeal in the polls than he does in any other state. So once we get to South Carolina and Nevada and all the Super Tuesday states, Clinton is way up in those polls. If Sanders actually wins in Iowa and New Hampshire, which I actually would bet on it, um, he'll go up in those other states. But I don't think he's going to go up enough to take her down. Do you guys think? Um, I think that's right. I think I would also add just one other thing is, I mean, Hillary Clinton is still, there are still a lot of Democrats who really like her. She also, um, I mean, what happens in some of these tough fights is that, you know, people are we're, still takes them a while. A lot of them decide late. I mean, it's not, you know, she has a pretty strong resume for Democrats. They like her. She's been fighting for these issues, um, you know, on women and families her entire life. Um, And she's got national security uh, experience that Democrats trust. And I think there's an elective. What interests me, David, to your question is um, when we get to the electability issue, Hillary Clinton put out uh, an ad last Sunday in which she showed all the Republican candidates talking about foreign policy and basically said, who's the only one who can go up against them? In usually in primaries, the two big things that matter are ideology and electability. Sanders obviously has the ideology piece down because voters are looking at the economic, you know, they're, they're looking at the inequality question first. And since he does better on that, he has the kind of ideology column better than she does. But she has electability, although maybe not except that how, what's the electability argument with Sanders? I guess it's just that he's going to create this revolution on the left that's going to swamp the Republicans. I think that it probably would incite its own revolution on the right. Sounds but like a fantasy to me. Is, do you guys think, as a last question, Hillary Clinton's campaign, I mean, John, as you say, she has lots of people who support her. She has the experience. She is clearly, when Democrats look at their candidate versus the Republican, there's, there are very few Democrats who are, who are going to w- wish they had a Republican, one of the Republicans, rather than Hillary. But can she, will, ha, how does she build the excitement that she needs? So she has Lena Dunham campaigning for her in Iowa, which felt slightly desperate as a move. But is there a way that she gets people moving? I think the way it often happens is people need to kind of be in a, put themselves in a position where they're ready to be moved, which means they really need to start making final decisions. And sometimes they, they, they decide late last week, you know, in the last week of the race or last 10 days. So when they're in that frame of mind, she needs to have a moment, a rallying moment, uh, a moment that shows like that she's out there fighting for a specific thing that people care about, a kind of she needs to appear in her best self in front of them when they're in that mode in the last 10 days. And um, Maybe and it would actually be good for her if Sanders went after her at the debate and then she could push back against him. Right. I mean, or, I mean, it'll be interesting in the debate because she's, you remember in the, in the debate she has been uh, very uh, aggressive with Sanders. I mean, remember in the first debate she went after him fast, hard, and early. Right. Um, so it'll be interesting to to watch that. She has always, as far as my reporting has told me, always been worried about Sanders, even when she was up by twenty points, um, more so than a lot of the people around her. And so that's sort of interesting. Can I just say one more thing finally about guns, which is the other issue on which they're having a lot of debate? Hillary Clinton basically arguing that he, that Bernie's heart isn't really in the issue uh, as much as hers is. 
what's interesting about that is it's the it's essentially the same argument he's making about Wall Street, and I and those are two issues obviously the Democrats care a lot about, and I wonder how that plays out and whether people you know do people really think that if either one of them is in office that their ability to get gun control legislation through or do things to limit the you know number of guns in America is going to be vastly different. And then I think on Wall Street, the same question holds, which is Bernie Sanders may want to do a bunch of things that Hillary Clinton doesn't, and people, and he may be, or even if they have the same number of things they want to do, exact identical agendas, he may, people may think he's more passionate about it. But given the political realities of where we are, all that stuff's not going to pass. So is the difference that important? I don't know the answers to these questions. Okay, let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. One great resolution you can make for the new year is to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. There's an easy way to do that, which is stamps.com. Think about how much time you've wasted going to the post office, driving there, parking, waiting in line. Stamps.com is the better way to get postage. Just use what you already have, your computer and printer, to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier will pick it up. With Stamps.com, everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk and at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST and get the special offer of a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Supreme Court this week heard the case of Fredericks versus California Teachers Association considering the issue of 10 California public school teachers who want to stop being forced to pay what are called agency fees to a union they do not belong to but which represents them for collective bargaining. They're compelled to pay for the representation the union provides for collect- over collective bargaining, tenure, or working conditions. They say that effectively this representation or this, these, these fees are forced political speech and they don't want to do it. When the Supreme Court overturns these agency fees, which it will, clearly, it will affect the 23 mostly blue states that allow public employee unions to require this kind of contribution. Emily, what's this case about? It's not about political – it's not about unions actually doing political activism. That's a separate issue. Ah, we'll have, we'll have to talk about how you're defining political activism because that's the question here, right? So unions do lots of things. Some of what unions do is – clearly political activism. It's backing Democratic candidates and pushing for particular um, laws or platforms. And in the current system that we were just describing, if you're a member of a union and you don't support that core political activity and speech, you can get a refund of the part of your union dues that goes to that activity. Is that private and public sector unions? No, we're talking about public sector Only public sector unions. For a private sector union, you couldn't get a refund for that. I am not. Well, private sector unions are not affected by this whole agency fee thing. They're like in their own legal world. Um, And so this line of cases is only about public sector unions. So the question in this case is is whether you could also get a refund for the part of your agency or fair share fees, that's what the unions like to call them, for the part of those fees that goes to collective bargaining. And so then the question becomes, well, is collective bargaining also political speech? Collective bargaining implicates all kinds of 
educational issues, right? If you define politics broadly, then who's to say that a union agreement that gives, um, you know, last fired to most senior teachers is in itself a political statement? Or what about taking a stance against charter schools or any number of provisions that are part of collective bargaining? And so that is the kind of First Amendment test and concern that has been set up in this case. And it's a perfect vehicle for this conservative majority on the Supreme Court to stop allowing unions to collect these agency or fair share fees because this conservative court loves the First Amendment. And this whole idea of compelled speech is very um, moving, especially to Justice Kennedy, but really to all five of them. And this is the weird case in which Justice Kennedy is clearly against the unions, and it was really only Scalia who seemed like maybe he was up for grabs. Um, But then after argument, it was clear Scalia isn't either. And then the last thing I'll say about what the case is about is the whole question of respecting precedent, respecting the old rulings of the court. Because we have here a 1977, I think, um, ruling called Abood, which created this compromise, this idea that for the sake of labor peace and just to allow unions to actually represent their members effectively, we we weren't going to have a free rider problem where people could get all the benefits of the unions by being a teacher effectively represented by this union without actually paying these fees. And so that That precedent absolutely is going to have to be overturned in order for the court to reach the result that the conservatives want to reach here and that the plaintiffs want to reach. And so there was a lot of jockeying over that um, at oral argument with the liberal justices saying, wait, wait, but people have relied on this ruling. This is a world of change. Well, but if it's a constitutional sin, it's a constitutional sin, right? That's exactly right. You couldn't have said it better. I bet Justice Kennedy will use some language like that. Just too bad. Emily, for federal government employee unions and in – Public employee unions in most or about 20, I guess, 27 states do not have these kind of agency fees. So do those unions function ineffectually? Do they have huge free rider problems? What's the what's the case that this becomes a national – this becomes a catastrophe given that half the country doesn't have it anyway? Well, right. So half the country doesn't have these agency fees or doesn't even allow collective bargaining. There are some states in which public sector, at least state employees, aren't even allowed to collectively bargain. What we know about places like that, so first of all, there's a correlation between having a strong teachers union and the kids achieving a little more in school. There's some evidence about that, specifically to teachers and education. And there is also pretty strong evidence that if you don't allow the collection of these kinds of fees, the share of the group of employees represented by the union goes way down. Um, And so that was another thing that came up at oral argument. John Roberts, was the chief justice, said, well, if 99% of the teachers already are represented by the union, obviously everyone, they like you anyway. Don't worry, right? That's another lovely rhetorical part of this is like, unions, why are you demanding to collect these mandatory fees. If you're doing such a good job, everyone's going to want to join you, as if recognizing the free rider problems are separate from that dynamic. And it is certainly true that in states where these fees aren't collected and in right-to-work states, you know, the big political movement, union membership has fallen really dramatically. Yeah. It's fallen uh, pretty dramatically in, in Wisconsin, right? Yes. And the political result of that, of course, is that if the union membership falls and the unions no longer have the money uh, from those dues, then the unions are less powerful to help Democrats. And so you, you know, you see it has a real, I mean, <clears throat> on, the right, on the right, conservatives are very happy that, um, that the political effect here will be the less support for Democratic candidates. 
I'm right. a little bit concerned. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I my sister-in-law is a member of a public school public school teachers union. I am a little bit. I don't. I don't. I'm not that sympathetic to this case. I. I'm a little troubled by the idea that a. Fe, I mean, federal government, a government state. employees, state, state. Sorry, government employees, whether state or federal government, are not quite like private sector employees. That the government is a different sort of employer, and I am. I'm troubled that the. I, I'm troubled with the the idea that public employee employees get all the same union benefits that you would if you were in a private sector union and that I'm troubled by the idea that you'd be compelled effectively to join a public sector union. So there's a I'm not I can't articulate it very well. Well, I'm not sure if this is your concern, but there's a historical reality here which is I would say not ideal. Historically, when we think about the importance and the like righteousness of American unions, we think mostly of private sector unions. We think of big companies screwing workers. We think of the auto industry. We think of like strikes and times when people were getting treated terribly and paid poorly and they, you know, came into factories and they all of that. What we have is a really declining private sector union in this country and in a kind of inversion where the public sector, state and city unions have become much more important. So there are problematic things about that. The people who guard the fiscal purse for state and states and municipalities aren't going to be paid more or less or have their company's worth go up or down based on what they give away. And that has caused problems in a lot of states where the pension deals unions have gotten have, you know, caused huge nightmares for state budgets. And so maybe that's part of what you are talking about here. And yet, if you think about the idea that unions have been crucial to the American middle class, I mean, there's a super strong correlation. But absolutely. But I think your point at the beginning is right, which is that unions in the unions to protect against the predations of capitalism and the predations of the private sector and, and the you know the willingness of owners of capital to force people to work 60 hour weeks to force them to work in unhealthful unsanitary conditions that you are absolutely right that unions have were integral to that fight the public employee unions as i understand it and this is my 10 second history arose kind of to prevent political corruption mostly they don't arise to prevent abuses of workers exactly they arise to prevent abuses of the public of of to prevent people from packing government with their friends and and firing people for political Nepotism reasons. Nepotism and cronyism. Yeah. And that seems to me a much less – that's not as live an issue. It doesn't seem to me that deserves that, – that is not um, – well, you're That's under- not really what we're talking about here. I think you're underselling the public sector unions because they also make sure that these government jobs are decent jobs with good health and benefits, that you can't just be fired willy-nilly if you're a teacher because there's a new principal who wants to bring in his friends. I mean, I don't think the issues of cronyism are necessarily gone, and certainly they could come back with a vengeance if we abandon public sector unions. But I think the other argument has to do with the future of the labor movement in this country, which is already under threat. And if millions of people fall away from their um, state employee unions in the next few years because the Supreme Court said, you know what, you don't have to pay these dues anymore. Go ahead, take your free ride. That's going to have a real effect on the labor movement, which both has the pro-Republican candidate, anti-Democratic candidate consequence John just laid out, and then just also has this big question of what do we do about the gap in inequality in this country and the fact that throughout our history, declining union membership is associated with declining middle-class income. Well, that's a 50-year sample. I mean, there wasn't a, there was there. It's there's been declining middle class income, and it's there's an been declining 50 mu- years. union membership. But it's not 
you know, the world has changed enormously since the day we had a heyday of American unions, which coincided with the heyday of America's power in the world. And those things have all been declining and there's a global labor, labor force. And so it is absolutely the case that American labor unions have weakened and that American middle class has weakened along with it. But these things are not – they're not necessarily exactly one-to-one – one so what's the your other. alternative? They're, what is going to be the organizing force that protects American workers and the American middle class? Like we don't have an well, answer where, to that. Or, or put it more different. Put it differently. Who who has? How, where do you get as a worker? Where do you get the leverage at the bargaining table with your employer? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a big it's a huge problem. I'm I'm not I'm a want, emotionally I believe in what unions do and I support them and I recognize how important they've been. But it is really hard to uh, – I don't know. It's very hard for me to get around it in specific cases to think that I, – I don't think it's the, the responsibility of the Supreme Court to protect the American labor union. But I don't that think that really is its job. What, but is that really what we're talking about here? Because all we're talking about are states in which the state legislatures have decided to allow unions to collect these fees, which are pretty rational kind of form of fee collection, right? You represent a whole bunch of people. Those people are going to benefit from your salary and pension negotiations, so they should have to pay something for what they're going to get out of it. Whether the Supreme Court needs to step in and wave the Constitution and the First Amendment around and tell those states, like, no, you're wrong, you have to go join Wisconsin and all the other right-to-work anti-collective bargaining states, that's, that's a different question. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good point. That's a good point. What other union dominoes are still to tumble after this one? Because they're going to lose on this one. Well, then you could have a whole question about card checks and private sector unions. How much do unions – what kinds of st- hurdles do unions have to jump through in order to represent employees? What other barriers could we create to make it even harder for them to um, convince a factory or a company to become a union shop? What do you guys think – and maybe this gets to where – question you were asking of me a minute ago. What do you guys think that the American workers can do to assert their rights against capital now? I mean, it is really hard to come up with actual practical things that that workers can do that gives them power, negotiating power, power to get higher wages, power to push down their CEO's wages, which is that that is like an outrage that's happened in this country. What can we do? Well, what can what can workers do, or what can the the body politic, the body? Yeah. Well, workers. Those are two different questions. What can workers do? Well, the worker. I mean, the worker's best tool at the moment is go get a job somewhere else, get trained, go and you know become more skilled and go somewhere else. That's not a um, and it, you know and that would be helped if the labor market were a little tighter. I mean, it's getting uh, tighter, but it's not tight enough yet, so that it's putting enough pressure on wages that, uh, or the kind of pressure on wages that would actually help people. It would also but be a better I solution if another... we had a really good K through 12 and community college system that really educated everybody the way that... Well, that's a, right, but a worker can't help that. Well, I know, but that's, I mean, that's another factor in all of this um, lack of equity, right? Yeah, well, I mean, if you want, if you want government solutions, then you have, yeah, there's the education portion of it. There's the um, make it easier for people to move from job to job so that they can exercise their, uh, you know, right to get leverage at the bargaining table by threatening to leave. And that's what that's one of the claims that the president makes for the Affordable Care Act, which is that because you can now because your insurance is no longer tied to your employer the way it used to be, you can leave and move jobs and that gives you more mobility. Other people would argue for things like, you know, some of the protections for um, 
family leave and and um, sick leave and even publishing of schedules uh, on a you know reasonable basis so that people can know when they go into a new job that they're not going to be losing on all those other things that those are there's a uniform set of protections for workers which allows more moving around between jobs that would be the kind of progressive uh, response to all of that um, and the conservative response would be just create a great uh, a great economy in which there are shortages and people you know and the, and if you're successful and work hard you'll have plenty you'll have jobs because you'll be wanted by lots of employers all right uh let's move on actually before we move on i just had a i i, I was thinking into a reverie emily is there some obamacare case that's in front of the that we're waiting for a decision from the Supreme Court? Or Obamacare? They, is no. there one of those weird, like, legal... There is some remaining did, lingering Obamacare suit out there, but it's not before the Supreme Court. The thing we're waiting for is whether the Supreme Court is going to take the Obama administration's appeal of the ruling by the Fifth Circuit about Texas's immigration. No, um, not yeah, that. That's what we're there was not for. one of those weird Obamacare cases with you know some linguistic not interpretation. The Supreme Court. No, we're talking no. about the the about the Dream the executive order that um, essentially made parts of no. the Dream Act law and whether uh, the Obama administration actually gets to give immigration relief to all those folks. All right, I'm coming back from my reverie to talk about our second sponsor this week, which is Bonobos. Did I send you into a reverie, David? You sent me, did you send me into a reverie? Was it, a, it was, a, the, you guys were talking and one of you was talking about, a, a, there was a word, the word decision <laughs> came up and somehow decision just sent me thinking like, is there some other decision we're waiting for? Wasn't there an Obamacare case we talked about that was crazy and couldn't we end up with another crazy decision and we're waiting for it? And then Emily says no. I thought there was something. But anyway, forget it. Jeez, you seem so insistent. I'm having doubts. Elle, are you looking this up? No. She will. Uh, okay. The Cat Fest is sponsored this week by Bonobos. Every guy wants to look his best, but few men want to put in the effort to maintain a stylish wardrobe. It's a hassle. It's an inconvenience to shop for clothes, to go from store to store. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. They have clothes for any body type and any fit preference, you can easily browse online from the comfort of your home, as I have done. You can check out top quality styles, and they have free and easy shipping and returns and personable and fast service. You can even try on clothes at one of their guide shops before you buy. Bonobos offers a full line of stylish men's clothing, all meticulously crafted for a better fit. They have shirts for the office or the weekend, suits that fit like they've been tailored just for you. They have jackets and outerwear, ties, belts, and shoes, and even golf clothes. Actually, I'm planning a golf outing, so maybe I should get some golf clothes. Their pants look stylish, feel comfortable, and you can pick your perfect fit from slim to standard to tall. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order when you go to bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. El Chapo. The notorious Mexican cartel boss who broke out of prison in July was recaptured this week. At virtually the moment of his capture, Rolling Stone released an interview with him that had been conducted in person by Sean Penn, who, with the help of a Mexican actress and various shady functionaries, had cloak and daggered his way across Mexico to meet El Chapo. It's not clear if Penn's meeting aided in the capture. The Mexican government said it did, but they would say that, wouldn't they? But both the capture and the interview set off a firestorm of discussion about the narco policies, about Penn's journalistic ethics, 
mostly what was striking to me as a journalist, as a frustrated journalist, was that the Penn interview was just terrible. Oh, my God. It was terrible as an interview. Terrible. Right, but Penn's, luxuriate in the ways in which it was terrible. Yes. Well, so it did, it, well, okay, so it re- begins <laughs> with his maybe three or four, 5,000 words about his, you know, making his way to El Chapo and how he finds his way and the meal that he ends up eating with El Chapo and talks about why he's, you know, he's taken in, he's taken with El Chapo, who he sees as, in a, as a victim as much as a, as a victimizer and a, a victim as we all are of this terrible drug war, drug policy. And then he finally gets his camera in front of El Chapo and he asks him the dumbest, the dumbest freaking questions you can imagine and gets the most boring answers. The El Chapo, it, it sounds like a bureaucrat at a very boring accounting firm. He loves his mom, though. We he know loves that. his mom. He was raised in poverty. He only kills in self-defense. You know, it was the only job he could get. He, you know, he he doesn't really think about the implications of it. It was so terrible. It was, it was, that was what was so infuriating about all of it. But, um, is there something more to say about the the substance of the interview? No, except that Lo and Liu, Slate's genius managing editor, did uh, like line edit notes for Sean Penn's article as if they were written by El Chapo, and they are so funny and great. Everyone has to go read them. The uh, how would you guys have conducted that interview? First of all, would would you? So the terms on which Penn got this, he had to sort of make his way across Mexico, deal with some very shady characters, and, and clearly, like, be nice to some very shady characters to get the interview. Um, but then he had to agree to pre-approval of the – El Chapo had to approve whatever it was he was going to write. He says that El Chapo proposed to change nothing. Would you guys have agreed to those terms, first of all, to get to him and then to do the interview? So I know this is super – not what I'm supposed to say. I would not have done this interview. I mean, A, I'm so unequipped to do this interview. I wouldn't know what questions to ask. B, I don't think it would... You would, do, you would have asked a hell of a lot better questions than John Penn. Yes. So, I mean, I think that would be true of, like, the, you know, table oh, that you we're would, sitting you at. Could, you could, you would know what could, questions don't you to think, ask. But, but didn't... I mean, okay. So, yes, like, in some world. This is a great get. It's not that I don't see that. He hadn't talked to anyone in 20 years. He's this totally colorful figure. He's the most important drug pin of our time. Okay. But I would feel so just ill at the idea of all of the Mexican journalists, all the people who cover the drug, where all the people who actually know what they're doing. And then like I, because I've like charmed a soap opera actress, get to like watch. There's something just like gross You wouldn't have done the interview. Would you, John, forget the pre-approval. Would you have done the interview? I would have done the interview. I wouldn't have done it under those ground rules. Because of the pre-approval. Yeah. I mean, because then what the, you know, then you're, I mean, uh, it's interesting. So, uh, no, I mean, you, you, I, I can imagine some arrangements, but not, not like once you write up the story, then letting him edit it. I, I would have done it under, under those terms. I would have been under those terms. I th- Jack Schaefer, our former colleague at Slate, wrote, I thought, a really great piece for Politico about this. And he says... Again, he says the inter- you know the interview is not a very good interview, but that yes, it's an incredible get. It's a great thing to hear. And the problem with the pre-approval, it's more that you have to that the thing to do would have been to give El Chapo a byline. No one would have had any problem that solution. if El Chapo's That's byline right. had been on it and it had been That's like right. El Chapo, my story. But yeah. then, how could Sean Penn have written the whole first half about his you know? Although, <sighs> although here's the thing, actually, maybe we've got it wrong. And I mean, it's Sean Penn. This is not an interview. I mean, it would be different if, like, the anchor of, uh, of from a major news organization or the New York Times did this or something. But this is like, 
I mean, this is Rolling Stone and Sean Penn. Right, so and Sean Penn essentially whatever. playing a journalist in a, on Hollywood. I actually thought another possible interpretation for how um, cozy he is toward El Chapo, the whole line about how, like, oh, he seems, he doesn't seem like a big bad wolf. He said the same thing about Fidel Castro, right? Or maybe or, and Hugo, Hugo Chavez. Chavez. And I think he's, like, playing them in a movie in his head. He's, like, right? He's not having any critical distance from El Chapo or Hugo Chavez. He's, like, imagining himself on screen playing those roles. Yeah, and and his his conflation of his belief that the problems with the war on drugs in the United States, of which there are many and enormous, and, and that that creates a that creates a moral free pass for El Chapo is bizarre. And I mean, can I just say that the syntax in those paragraphs was essentially impossible to follow? They were like barely in English, really. Oh, really? Oh my God, unbelievably bad writing. I really don't understand how that piece was. Ended. A friend of mine who works for a place where they sometimes have to handle celebrities. Uh, and at celebrity writing got a piece of writing from a very, very famous celebrity. And it was, you can't touch the instructions to my friend where you can't touch this. But the celebrity had spelled a word. It was like from a, MC Hammer. It was a really important word that the celebrity had just spelled wrong throughout. And it was, it had a homonym. It was a homonym meaning. I'm not going to say any of this because then everyone will know what I'm talking about. I but, think I knew what you're talking but, about. But they were, this friend of mine was told, you can't touch this. And this friend said, you know, there's a misspelling that I think is going to make us look bad if we publish it. And they, they let the misspelling be corrected. But it was very funny. Oh, my God. Um, the, the Yeah, I, I think that Sean Penn – well, Joe, the other problem is, of course, that Rolling Stone, as we know, uh, you know, c- crawled into the unethical swamp of the UVA rape case and has not yet, in my mind, crawled out far enough that we can – we can treat anything it does uh, as above reproach. So anything well, in my I view that if they didn't done... decide, I just wonder if they didn't decide, hey, we're in the swamp. Let's just build camp here. I mean, <laughs> so if, that's, if you think of it that way. But don't you think, John, they think they've vindicated themselves and proved what swashbuckling, get the story, gonzo journalists they are? There was such a self-congratulatory air to the whole thing. And, um, you know, when, what's John, Jan Weber, is that his Jan name? Winner. When, Jan yeah. Winner. When he took his victory laugh about it, I, lap, I just wanted to throw Did he up. say, he said, El Chapo did not participate in any rapes at any frat houses. It was not <laughs> something El Chapo has done. I mean, I get, you know, but people are going to be self-promoting in all kinds of different ways. I think the... And it is a coup of a sort. I mean, it's just a, just it's not a coup of... It's not the same kind of coup that if the New York Times did it. I mean, it's just not – it's a totally different kind of arrangement of words on a piece of paper. My favorite anecdote about this um, came out, I think, in the Times today that, in fact, El Chapo only cared about the actress, Kate. Oh, yeah. He was crushing on her. Yeah. And he said about Sean Penn, what's his name again? Who is that guy? Like, I love that part of it. There was a moment when when El Chapo asked Sean Penn, do people know – have people heard of me? In the United States. And I thought El Chapo was asking Sean Penn, have people heard of you, Sean Penn, in the United States? <laughs> so I got slightly confused by that. But the um, – By the gonna... way, if you're Sean Penn, aren't you a little nervous About right what? Now? Oh, no. Well, that they'll this, come and like, take him out? Responsible for all of these killings and whose, who's, you know, confederates are responsible for killings could get the mistaken impression that the, the, the arrest and the publication of the uh, article are somehow linked. I mean, I don't know. I would be. But I mean, maybe he's brave enough. He was brave enough to go see him. So he's maybe. He's but it worried. also just seemed like El Chapo was glory seeking. This was all about how he wanted to have a Hollywood movie about his life that he would get to participate right. in. And so his Confederates, 
if that's true, then they would know that. I don't really understand. My guess is his confederates are not the kind to think like, oh, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Like, I mean, (laughs) don't you think they'd be pissed? I guess so. But who are they taking (laughs) revenge for? I don't know. I don't understand how El Chapo is a cartel boss from some house in the woods somewhere. I don't really know how he he could effectively run any sort of organization. He had all kinds of people there. And also, this totally freaked me out. When he was in prison, he saw like 400 visitors. Well, that part I understand. (laughs) It's only since he's been in the woods. But don't you think they can just like communicate and they all have burner phones and they all run around and do his bidding? Maybe. The, well, the, one of the reasons the Mexicans want to extradite him is because in the U.S. prison system, he will be incommunicado effectively, and he'll be he'll just vanish. He won't. No one will hear his name again, and he'll live with whoever it is, Manuel Noriega. Manuel Noriega is still in the supermax somewhere, right? Oh my God, who Ted Kaczynski that? and Manuel yeah. Noriega and and shoe bomber and the first World Trade Center bombers all hanging out in a supermax in Colorado and never speaking to the outside world. Um, okay, goodbye, El Chapo. Let's hear from our third sponsor this week. The GabFest is also sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes. They're great for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks who might be short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. And you're getting food that's healthy. HelloFresh employs a full-time registered dietitian who reviews each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. I've had a really good experience with HelloFresh. I had a great chili that I made and a really good squash risotto that I made. The, the, there, it was indeed like the vegetables were super fresh, super enriched, as the name would suggest. And they, the instructions were very clear. The box was excellent. It was – if you had that problem um, maybe where you get sent food from somewhere and it arrives and it's not cold or it's not been protected, the HelloFresh box was superb. It was really well insulated. And uh, it made a great meal and it was very easy. For me, it is – it's always more satisfying when I take the time to cook and it's uh, even better – when I take the time to cook something that's healthy that I get to eat at the end and feed to my family. I have a friend who totally swears by HelloFresh. Says it's changed her life. Wow. Yeah. That's a, amazing. It's, you guys are um, – I'm feeling like I should be ordering immediately. You should. It's very convenient and it's easy to use. HelloFresh, <laughs> uh, HelloFresh currently offers customers a classic box or a veggie box. And they'll be launching a family box too. I had a veggie box, I think. Customers can order three, four, or five different meals per week designed for either two people or four people. New recipes are created regularly. So listeners, if you visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code GABFEST, you can get $35 off your first week of deliveries. Visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code GABFEST when you subscribe. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're sitting on the porch drinking as you overlook your box of HelloFresh vegetables, Emily Bazelon. What will you be chattering about? I was saddened this week by the death of David Bowie, which I realize puts me in a large group. But David Bowie was my first pop star, rock star crush. I think that maybe Ziggy Stardust is the first album that I bought. I was kind of obsessed with him in like, I don't know, 8th, ninth, 10th grade. And I was trying to figure out why. I think it's because he was both incredibly classically handsome and super androgynous in this like 
very non-threatening way that really worked for my teenage self. So I wanted to um, recommend two David Bowie tributes. One is this really lovely piano tribute by Rick Wakeman um, that went around on Twitter, and we'll post the link to. And the other is um, a song by Bowie called Kooks from his album Hunky Dory. It's a very un-Bowie-like song. It's probably his like least cool song, which is why I really like it. And he wrote it when his... Um, when his son was born. So it's about being a parent and imagine imagining having a child. I feel like I'm the only person in my demographic who has no relationship to David Bowie. But that's okay. John Dickerson. You didn't need a classic. John, John, John Dickerson, as I think of you, well, you are the thin white duke of the Gabfest, John. So. Well, I was, when I was a kid, uh, my brother's girlfriend at the time used to... Um, say that I looked like David Bowie, and since she was, I was like 12 and she was 17, uh, there was a brief phase where I was trying to look like David Bowie, because I thought if that was... Your hair has kind of David Bowie moments, now that I think about yeah. it. Yeah. John is and architectural. I had a jacket like one of the ones he had on his album cover, I think. That was the there other you big go. Thing. Anyway, so my chatter is about a book I haven't read, but that I really want to read that I saw on, on Brain Pickings, which... Gabfest listeners will know is one of my favorite websites. Um, and it's a book by the New Yorker a columnist and science writer, uh, Maria Konnikova, called um, The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time, about con men and why they are successful. And as I was reading excerpts of it, it just reminded me of politics. Um, and so I'm going to read you two little excerpts um, from uh, the book and see if it does for you as well. It's the oldest story ever told, the story of belief, of the basic irresistible universal human need to believe in something that gives life meaning, something that reaffirms our views of ourselves, the world, and our place in it. For our minds are built for stories. We crave them, and when, they aren't, when there aren't ready ones available, we create them, stories about our origins, our purpose, the reason the world is the way it is. Human beings don't like to exist in a state of uncertainty or ambiguity. When something doesn't make sense, we want to supply the missing link. When we don't understand what or why or how something happened, we want to find the explanation. A confidence artist is only too happy to comply, and the well-crafted narrative is his absolute forte. So, you know, when you think about what politicians are selling to people who feel as they do in that previous paragraph I just read, um, it just kind of all syncs up nicely. So um, I'm going to go read the book, and uh, I suggest other people do too, even though I haven't actually read the book. Two points. One, Maria Konnikova is a regular guest on The Gist, and she, in fact, appeared at The Gist live show and was delightful. Two, there was a bit in, in the book, which I, I read about in one of the reviews, which is that apparently there was, she, she wrote about some con artist who was so good that he got a, seven boatloads of immigrants to immigrate to a place where there was no colony, <gasps> someplace in the jungle. Wow. That's a, that's a con artist for you. Okay, let, uh, let me go to my chatter. I'm going to do uh, two chatters, actually. The first one is a very uh, self-serving one, but, but you guys will be delighted by it anyway. Every year, Atlas Obscura, the media venture that I run – does something called Obscura Day in the spring, which is a one-day celebration of exploration and discovery where all around the world we put on events where people can go visit things, do things, go. Uh, this year we had a trip inside the Forbidden Zone at Chernobyl. We toured the smuggler tunnels underneath St. Paul. We, we had a concert at the Robotic Church in Brooklyn. And we're planning for Obscura Day 2016, which is going to be on April 16th, so mark your calendar. And we could use your help. We want to have people have even more cool things to go do. So if you 
work or at or volunteer at a place that has some wonderful collection or you're an expert in something unusual or you know someone who's an expert in someone, something unusual or you're an amateur explorer who knows some super cool place to visit in your community, we want to collaborate with you and create something for Obscure Day. For example, I did this last year where I knew about this, this uh, fort in the woods in Washington and I took people – to on a tour of this incredible fort in the woods in Washington. And there was a friend of ours in Iceland who arranged a special day at the Iceland Sea Monster Museum. So it could be anything that you think will spark people's sense of curiosity and imagination and discovery. So if you have an idea, and I know that you do, please email me at david at atlasobscura.com. And uh, I can't wait to hear from you with your great ideas. So we want to get more people out seeing the world. And then the second, my second quick chatter is just to endorse the podcast Limetown. If you liked the message, which was the Panoply podcast, which was sort of a real world a radio drama about eerie happenings, um, eerie sci-fi kind of happenings, you will like Limetown even better. I dare to say it's even better than the message. It's a six, six episode podcast. It seems to be like serial. It's very much modeled on serial, but it's about eerie ghostly real world hap- I mean you're ghostly fictional happenings um, and it's really cool I, have you guys listened to it no it's really really great. fun my kids yeah I've, um, I've heard them talk about it I haven't actually listened to it the uh, creators our intern is El Biscard Church our producer today is Jason DeLeon sitting in for Jocelyn Frank Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts the Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Email address is GabFest at slate.com. My email address for sending me Obscure Day ideas is david at atlasobscura.com, in case you forgot. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily and John, I'm Plots. It was really good to be back with you guys. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.